Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, this second message from uh, a bit of an Advent series that we're doing on uh, some of the passages that come out of the lectionary from the book of Isaiah. And the reading uh, for, for this message comes from the 61st chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read it to you now. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people of, that the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed in me a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden seeds to grow, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Last week I spoke a bit about how Isaiah foresees the exile of God's people and he sees beyond the exile to the restoration that God will bring for his people, taking them back to the promised land. And I spoke about the way that uh, we read Isaiah's uh, prophecy so much at this time of year, anticipating uh, Christmas, because for um, centuries now, uh, people have seen that Isaiah's words actually go beyond the circumstances of Israel, and they seem to speak to uh, God's desire to liberate from captivity and exile all humanity and to return them home to him. You know, one of the things that uh, keeps us captive is a kind of, a kind of existential poverty, a poverty, um, sometimes people say a poverty of spirit, um, but I'm going to talk about it uh, here and now in terms of kind of scarcity mindset. You know, uh, scientists and sociologists have been speaking for some years uh, recently about this thing that they are calling a scarcity mindset. And this is what happens uh, when an experience of scarcity, um, which is often, let's say, material poverty, um, you, you know, being poor, being financially poor, an experience of this kind of scarcity can actually change the way that our brains work. 
by making us particularly focused on the objects of scarcity. Um, the objects of the kind of scarcity that we have experienced. And it makes us focused on those objects at the expense of other things. The classic uh, example of, of this in play that I can think of, and perhaps you've heard of a story like this, um, but is a circumstance in which, say, a foster parent discovers that the child that they are fostering is sort of squirreling away food at mealtimes and hiding them somewhere in their room afterwards because their experience in the home that they've been removed from has trained them to expect not to have regular access to food. Have you heard the story like that? And um, in that regard, the child is unable to integrate into the relationships and the routines of their foster home because out of a sort of sense of self-preservation, they're practicing really, I guess, a kind of deception. Although we would understand it and forgive it, uh, it's a kind of a, a manifestation, if you like, of a lack of trust. A lack of trust that food's going to be there, a lack of trust that the person uh, who is supposed to provide for them, we would think, as a parent, is going to provide for them. Um, I was reading a, a paper on this recently where some scientists uh, basically scanned the brains of people who had had a variety of experience in, experiences in terms of relative poverty and wealth. Um, they scanned their brains as they did their grocery shopping. So this is a paper that was published in uh, the National Academy of Sciences in the US. So obviously there was some sort of pretty strict control measures around this. But basically what they did was scan people's brains as they were grocery shopping. And uh, the results that this experiment produced, and I'm going to quote uh, from the paper just briefly here. I'll, I can send out uh, the reference in some, in some notes. Uh, the results that this experiment produced, quote, demonstrated that a scarcity mindset affects neural mechanisms related to consumer decision making. Uh, and uh, specifically, it said uh, in the details of the paper that those who had this scarcity mindset, who had 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 come from an experience of of poverty, um, had increased activity in a region of their brain uh, that is implicated in valuation processes. So basically, to encode that for you, as they were shopping for food, their brain was lighting up, saying this is really important. And at the same time that this part of their brain was lighting up, another part of their brain uh, that is um, associated with goal-oriented and goal-directed choices was showing decreased activity relative to people who did not have this experience of poverty and what these scientists called a scarcity mindset. So there was less going on in their brain about how important that food shopping was relative to just about anything else in their life. It sort of dominated their focus, the attention of their brain in that moment. And basically, I'm going to risk oversimplifying uh, what this finding is saying for our purposes, um, just for the purpose of making it clear. But basically, when we're afraid that we're going to miss out on something, our brain goes into kind of reptile 
mode. Our brain becomes focused. I don't know if you've ever seen like a reptile hunting. They're not sort of thinking about, uh, you know, the, the well-being of other animals and that sort of thing. They're just focused on getting a feed. That's what I mean, a kind of a base level instinct. So our brains uh, in a scarcity uh, mode become so focused on the things that we want uh, that they become ex focused on those things often at the expense of other important things. And according to the scientists who wrote this paper I read, this is quite bad news uh, for the poor, for those who have this scarcity mindset. And this is why poor people often stay poor. I don't know if you've, if you've, if you've read anything or heard anything about generational poverty or the poverty trap, but this is the kind of thing that we're talking about because uh, whenever we have a chance, let's say we have a, a poverty mindset, a scarcity mindset, whenever we have um, a chance to have that thing that we've been lacking, that thing that we're afraid of not getting, our brains are actually not working properly. When that money hits our account, we're not thinking about what's best for us and others in the long term. We're thinking about getting what we can in that moment, getting what we're afraid that we're going to miss out on. Uh, and it's not just bad for the, bad news for those who uh, might be poor um, for some sort of material lacking. Uh, this sort of dynamic is bad news for whom affection has been scarce or for people uh, that have found validation lacking for all the ways that we can be poor. Uh, this scarcity mindset uh, is not a good scenario. It can serve as a kind of trap. It can prevent us um, from, from being able to escape our circumstances. You know, I've had opportunities to take people who are, you know, uh, really hard up grocery shopping, that sort of scenario where you say, listen, I'll, I'll get anything that you need, I'll pay for it. And the risk of uh, feeding stereotypes, because, you know, um, everyone's different. Um, and and um, I wouldn't want to, you know, I'd hate to seem judgmental in this, but I've often been astounded in those circumstances, the kind of shopping that people who have no money do buying things that uh, either aren't very good for them or aren't going to last very long. But it's really just an outworking of the fact that they've been in a poverty trap often. They don't necessarily know what's, you know, what might be better to do in that situation. Or um, it's like this, their brain has been rewired as I've been talking about. This is actually an old story, I would suggest. And I believe that it's a story that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when that, and here's a little bit of poetic license playing out, when that reptile said to the very first humans, you know, you're probably missing out by not eating the fruit from that tree in the middle of the garden. To quote Genesis 3 verse 5, the serpent said to them, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And if you know the story, you know that the man and the woman, the ancestors of all humanity, they took what they shouldn't and didn't need to take and they practiced deception and they hid from God and trust and relationship was broken. They were deceived into a kind of poverty. 
into what we might think of as a scarcity mindset. I believe that this has been a dimension of all sin since, of every time the reptile brain that must take what it can get kicks in, of every deception, of every breach of trust, of every mutual wounding in history. Just think of it, a world where everyone has either had something important taken from them or at the very least is afraid of having something important taken from them. And so they take from others. This is the rule of the scarcity mindset, a kind of anti-golden rule. Take from others because they'll most likely take from you. Do unto others before they do unto you. It sounds like the worst of our world actually, doesn't it? A world where whilst millions and millions of people live in poverty, last year's global wealth report by Credit Suisse tells us that the wealthiest 1% of humans hold 44% of the world's wealth. And I know that these issues are complex, right? And they don't tell us necessarily anything about who is doing what with their wealth. I've already suggested that poverty is about more than money. But I think that this is indicative. Let's assume that the wealthiest 1% of humans on the planet are completely benevolent, are doing everything they can to eradicate poverty. And frankly, I know that some of them are. Um, they're, they're, they are working hard to eradicate poverty and its negative effects. But let's assume all of that 1% who holds the 44% of the world's wealth are doing that. Why? In that case, does poverty exist? I think because it's a symptom of our human brokenness. It's evidence of our captivity. Who knows, though, that Jesus is good news for the poor. There may be lots of bad news for the poor, but Jesus is good news for the poor, whether that's the economically poor or the uh, existentially poor. You might know that Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth at the outset of his ministry, and we can read him reading this passage in Luke 4. Uh, in chapter 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Luke's Gospel. To say that after Jesus read this, he rolled up the scroll and then said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As Jesus proclaims that there is good news for the poor and freedom for prisoners, scholars actually would tell us in Isaiah's language here that this is a specific reference to the exiles in Babylon. As Jesus proclaims freedom for these exiles, as he proclaims sight for the blind, as he proclaims the year of the Lord's favour, which is the year of jubilee for Israel when the slaves were freed and debts were cancelled and ancestral lands were returned to their traditional owners in accordance with biblical law. As Jesus is proclaiming all of these things, echoing Isaiah's words, he is speaking to the abundance of God. And 
I want to tell you that the abundance of God and his grace is the only antidote to our scarcity mindsets. Isaiah, and then Jesus, not only quoting, but fulfilling these words, is in effect God throwing the kitchen sink at the scarcity problem. The abundance of God's goodness for us, his desire to break our entrapment to poverty, to free us from our exile, imprisonment, and imprisonment, to restore sight to our blind eyes and health to our sick bodies, to cancel our debts and to bring us home is the only thing that can disrupt our scarcity mindset. His grace and the abundance of it kills our scarcity mindset. How do you stop that little child who, when she thinks that no one is looking, drops food from the dinner table into her lap so that she can sneak it into her room and hiding place in her bedroom later because she's never sure if she'll get anything to eat tomorrow. How do you stop her from doing that? How do you break that in her? The only thing that has any hope of breaking that scarcity mindset is putting breakfast on the table when she wakes up and then packing her lunchbox with more morning tea and more lunch than she could possibly eat, and then making sure she's got a snack when she gets home from school, and then making sure that she's got more dinner that she can eat overnight, and then letting her know that there is food in the pantry and the fridge if she's ever hungry, and then you do that the next day, 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 and you do that the next day, until her brain is rewired, not to expect scarcity, but to expect abundance. This is what the Father God does for you and I through Jesus in the most profound and deep way. There is abundance, there is freedom, there is restoration, there is adoption into his family, eternal life in his home where we will lack for nothing. Why should any of us have any worries about what we might miss out on, what might be taken from us? Why should we ever need to be selfish and to take from others when God in his grace is committed to blessing us abundantly? as he has shown by sending his son. In Jesus, we see the generosity of God. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus models the Father's generosity. Philippians 2.6-8 talks about the fact that though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. The Father is so generous. His grace is so abundant to us that we, he would give us his only son. The son like his father, is generous and his grace is so abundant to us that he would suffer and give up his life for us. This is what we anticipate. This is what we bend our hearts towards during Advent, the coming of the Son into the world, the one who brings God's plans toward its good 
great and glorious end. The one who will declare the year of the Lord's favour, that jubilee year when things begin to be put right again. We're rooted in grace. And when we're rooted in grace, we grow in righteousness. I love the way that after this outpouring of grace that we've read from Isaiah 61, it talks about God bestowing a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning. It talks about a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And then it says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That they, which this passage refers to, the returned exiles, those who have been recipients of God's abundant grace, will be called, Isaiah says, the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. Commentators say that the imagery of oaks here speaks of something which takes time to come into maturation. The way that I read it, this abundance of grace poured out for his people by God provides soil for growing and maturing into righteousness. Isaiah says that this work that God does in his people, a planting of righteous oaks, is a display of his splendor because by his abundant grace, he is breaking the power of sin and darkness in the world and he is establishing people who share his nature. This is what God does and is doing in the world because he is abundantly gracious. His people have abundant grace for others because he is abundantly generous. His people are abundantly generous. The challenge for us this Advent is to prepare our lives for his abundant grace because when we receive it, it will change us, rewiring our brains so that we become a people of an abundance heart and mindset, living to disrupt and defeat that which holds people captive to scarcity, living to disrupt that with all that God makes available to us through Jesus. Are you ready for that? That's what this season's about, this season of Advent getting ready for that great disruption. Hey, let me pray for us. God of hope, you call us home from the exile of selfish oppression to the freedom of justice, the balm of healing and the joy of sharing. Make us strong in, uh, to make us strong to join in your holy work as friends of strangers and victims, companions of those whom others shun, and as the happiness of those whose hearts are broken. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Have a great week.